Smile's a good thing, right? Uh, I'm learning now in, in this, at least where I live, and I'm sure it's where you live too, because our whole state is like this, but in this post-Christian culture, it's the little things. It's acts of kindness. It's uh, a smile. It's just the little things that may open the door or plant the seed uh, for people. So way to go. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I feel like um, we uh, have been the paralytic and the lax have been the friends at the roof and they have lowered us down at your feet. And we have gazed up at your character and you've revealed who you are. Your honey in the rock, your water in the stone, your firm foundation. Thank you that it is true that um, while our culture shakes and circumstances shake, we cannot be shaken. I want that. I, I'm convicted this morning. So, Lord, as we uh, see you vividly in Ruth chapter 2, pray, Lord, that you would um, bring healing to us. And today, that you would be, as you were prophesied, a wonderful counselor, a mighty God an everlasting Father, and our Prince of Peace. We love you. Thank you. Thank you for these daughters. Thank you for these dads. Thanks for Hume Lake. We give you this time. It's a, it's a sacred entrustment that we give back to you. In Jesus' name, everyone said amen. amen. All right. Hey, I want you to meet uh, two people. I want you to meet Justin and Patrick. Uh, these are two followers of Jesus and their best friends. They were actually born 36 hours apart in the same hospital. And they've been, as they say, inseparable ever since. Now, as a father of three kids, very early on in his 30s, Justin was diagnosed with a chronic disease that, um, ironically, it's kind of the sub-theme of the weekend, he was confined to a wheelchair his whole life. Um, he had a disease that wasn't ALS, but it was similar to ALS, and it would just eat away at his muscle ability and his ability to care for himself. To quote him, he said, looking down a deep, dark hole of despair was what I was doing through the first few months of this disease. But then he decided that life, I love this line, is life is too short to die before I die. He learned about a walk, a sacred walk, called the Camino de Santiago in Spain. It's an ancient hike. It's 500 miles long, and many people go on a pilgrimage to uh, work out things with God or discover things about themselves on this hike. Has anyone hiked the Camino de Santiago? Yeah, a few of you have. Awesome. He wanted to do it, but he's confined to a wheelchair. And Patrick, instinctively, as they were talking about this, said, I'll push you. No one in a wheelchair had done the Camino before that. They made a documentary. Let's look at five minutes. Uh, you can catch that on YouTube. It's about an hour long. You'll never recover. I want you to turn to your daughters or to each other. And what did you see? What's one thing you saw in that video that you loved? Ready? Go. Take a couple minutes.
So what, that, what I saw, and the reason I have that for us, is I think that's a beautiful picture of what we're going to see in Ruth chapter 2. It's a beautiful picture of what should take place and can take place in a father-daughter relationship uh, where dads were obviously pushing our daughters, but daughters, you're pushing your dads too. The Bible calls that encouragement, encouragement. And my thesis is encouragement is essential, essential to our lives. Why? I'll quote that great theologian J.K. Rowling, uh, who wrote, uh, obviously, you know what she wrote, uh, Harry Potter. And she said this, don't let the muggles get you down. Life is full of muggles, right? And dads, we may have been 12, my daughter's 13, I may have been 13, but I was never the age she is today. Because the world she's growing up in is vastly different. She has way more voices coming at her, way more muggles coming at her. And ours should be a home filled with what uh, my mentor, my dad mentor, calls awe. And I'm not talking about, oh, you left your clothes out again. Oh, you didn't clean up your room. Oh, you didn't clear the table. I'm talking about A-W-E, affirmation, warmth, encouragement. The daughters that we are living with that God has entrusted us to are living in a world where they're filled with muggles trying to tear them down. Their culture is trying to tear them down. Everything they believe in our home about Jesus that they've received from us, that culture is trying to tear them down. Let them be, uh, let us have the home court advantage where they come home and they know I get affirmed, not for what I do, but for who I am. They get warmth. They come into a home that we set the temperature. We're not the thermostat, uh, the thermometer reflecting the temperature of the culture. We're the thermostat turning up the temperature in their lives. Encouragement, letting them know in Christ you've got what it takes. Encouragement isn't rah-rah because of what you do. Encouragement is pulling out of them who they are in Christ so they can understand what they can do through Christ. So important. It's so important. Our daughters need to be pushed. That's what a church should be. It should just be a place where people are being pushed to go farther, to go deeper, because we're together. And we can do things together that we couldn't do alone. So to recap where we've been in Ruth 1, uh, we open the story. There's a famine. The house of bread has no bread. Uh, a father makes one of the worst choices of any dad in the Old Testament. And he takes his kids and his wife and goes to a cursed family. He transgresses a boundary. We don't sin in a vacuum. There's a ripple effect to our sin. And it, it, has, it has the ripple effect in his kids' lives. They die. He dies. Naomi's left alone. She says to her daughters-in-law in a huge selfless act, you stay here. I'm going back. I'll make this treacherous, dangerous journey on my own. And Orpah goes Ruth says, I'm going with you. If that's who God is, that he does that kind of selfless thing in a human being, I want to follow your God. I want to go where you go. I want to die where you die. And then they enter in right around barley season, and she enters back into Bethlehem. Naomi changes her social on her social from hashtag blessed to hashtag alone, cursed, God has betrayed me, all of that. And that's where we left you last night. So let's pick it up in Ruth chapter 2. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. Ten of us are. Here we go. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech. That was her dead husband. Uh, a man of standing. Circle those words, men. We'll get back to them. Whose name was what? Boaz. 
Boaz, there we go. Now we meet our third character that we're going to harp out on all weekend long. Boaz is a remarkable man. That word, a man of standing, is actually two Hebrew words together. The first is a mighty warrior, skilled in the art of war. The second is someone with great character. You put them together, and the English translators call that a man of standing. And dads, that is our God-given ability. We don't have what it takes in us, but in Christ, we can be skilled in the art of spiritual war, taking our swords and praying over our home, praying scripture over our home, encouraging our daughters with scripture, writing it in dry erase marks on their mirrors, skilled in the art of war, interceding for them as they go on the day. But there's also a man of character who's not just a warrior, he's a warrior with noble character, Christ-likeness. That's what a man of standing is. The best thing I could tell you about this man, Boaz, when Solomon built his temple, one of the, you know, just this vast, amazing temple, the pillars that held up the temple, he gave names to the pillars. And in 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 21, one of the pillars' name, Boaz. Boaz was a pillar in Bethlehem. He held up so much. And when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, we meet one man, just one, the power of one, who is saying, you know what? I'm not going to do what's right in my own eyes. I'm going to follow Jesus. Though none go with me, what does the hymn say? Still, I will follow. Can one person make a difference in a culture? Can one person make a difference in a workspace? Can one person make a difference at a school who says, you know what? Do whatever you want to me. I'm going to choose the honey and the rock, the water and the stone. My foundation is going to be firm on Christ. That's Boaz. That's Boaz. And we're going to see what he's doing. He's always pushing people in the book of Ruth. He's encouraging people. You know, in that movie, uh, I'll Push You, Justin and uh, his friend came to a mountain that it was the night before they were in a hostel and um, they were talking over dinner and they didn't realize the next day they were climbing this mountain that you saw a little bit of it that was way too big for them. And then the next morning they showed up and everyone they had dinner with made a decision. They called their friends. There were 20 people meeting them at the bottom of the mountain saying, we're going to go up together. And Justin reflected on that. He said, there was a beautiful human symphony carrying me up the mountain. This is what he says. I may not be able to get myself dressed. I may not be able to brush my teeth. I can no longer hold my wife's hand or hug my kids, but I've climbed mountains thanks to that community. Men, daughters, that's God's design, that you have people around you to help you climb mountains together. That's how you become a man of standing. That's how you become like a Ruth. The people around me, show me your friends, I'll show you your future. So let's pick it up. Verse 2, and Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes, remember these three words, I find what? Favor. Naomi said, go ahead, my darling. 
Uh, go ahead, my daughter, she said. Okay, we pick up the dialogue. There's more dialogue between Ruth and Naomi. Let me just bring us into a cultural context that you may not know about. They're hungry. They came back to Jerusalem, but they had no means of making money. They're living on a barren land, and Ruth ventures out to get food. She's stepping out. She's trusting God, saying, you know what? Maybe someone will look beyond my label of being a Moabitess. Maybe someone will give me favor. Maybe there's someone in this city who doesn't do what's right in their own eyes. She had no agency. She had no standing. She was completely vulnerable. And she says to her mother-in-law, I'm going to go find food for us. They're starving to death, literally. And she goes out to glean. She's hoping someone won't racially profile her, won't objectify her as a woman. And she's trying to find food for her mom in law. Uh, gleaning in the Old Testament was kind of like the habitat for humanity uh, of the Old Testament. God, in his word, in the book of Leviticus, if we had three hours, we'd go there. We're not going to go there. Uh, but he said to Israel, I care for the poor. They matter to me. So when you harvest your field, I want you to leave a margin. If you have 40 acres, only harvest 39. And let the poor come and pick from the harvest so you dignify them through work and then they can have food for themselves. That's gleaning. So she's going out hoping that someone is honoring God this way. Verse 3. She went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. Look at this line. I put it in yellow. As it turned out. Literally in Hebrew it says this. And her chance chanced. The Hebrew author, whoever wrote this book, again is pointing to providence. She goes out thinking it's an ordinary day. God sees her, goes out, and goes, oh, I can't wait to, for you to see what I've provided for you today. God is always one step ahead of you. You can call that coincidence, but you know, coincidence is often God's way of remaining anonymous. Providence. Providence. She finds herself working in the field belonging to Boaz, that pillar in the community, who was from the clan of Elimelech. It's amazing. Verse 4, just then, Boaz, by the way, if you believed in this providence thing, how would your Monday be different? Let's fast forward two days. If you really believed God was ahead of you, if you really believed Ephesians 2.10, that God has designed good works in advance for us to walk into, men and, and women and girls, if you go to a school, you should kick open the door of your school and go, it is your lucky day. Woman of God is on the scene. God has good works for me to do. The kingdom's going to advance because I'm here. I may not see it, but I'm going to believe it. I am unshakable in that. Men, you can walk into your workplace going, it is your lucky day. A disciple disguised as a doctor showed up today. Or a disciple disguised as a contractor has showed up today. We had this, uh, a group of these um, trades people, just, it just overtook them, and they would come to me and go, it, to, as a pastor, it, I'll use different language, it, uh, it stinks to be you, pastor. I'm like, why? So they say, I can go into homes that you could never go into. I'm not just fixing pipes, I'm praying for lives and asking God to do great things. This providence thing, I'm telling you, if you get a hold of it, your life becomes an adventure, whether you see it or not. Verse 4, just then, Boaz arrives from uh, Bethlehem, and he greets the harvesters. Here we go. 
The Lord be with you. This happens, guys, this happens in our workplaces, right? The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. They, they replied back. He's setting the culture. He's setting the temperature for his workspace. What you're going to find in Boaz is this conviction. I bless people, period. Tomorrow morning we're going to see an amazing interaction between Boaz and a very evil person. And yet he's still blessing him. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters. That was the nerd with the clipboard who actually went to college on the field. And he says, uh, whose young woman is that? Now, if you underline stuff in your Bible, girls, dads, underline that line. Whose young woman is that? It is the question that drives the book of Ruth. You're going to see in the book, many people label her. We're going to see it in one verse, how she gets labeled in verse 6. But to Boaz, she was a young woman, and he's saying, whose does she belong to? It's the question I have to ask every morning when I wake up regarding my wife. Who's you? I still think she's young. Whose young woman is she? She's not just my wife. She's a sacred entrustment from God. She belongs to God. She's God's daughter. I'm married to God's daughter. That demands a certain ethic in the way I treat her and encourage her and pray for her. Dads, these daughters that have been trusted to us, whose young women are they? They're not ours. They've been entrusted to us by the Lord God Almighty as, as clumps of clay to mold and shape in the power of the Holy Spirit and then to give back to God one day. Whose young woman is that? You will never look into any two eyes that weren't created in the image of God, loved by God, and for the people of God, demand, demand a high ethic in the way we treat them. We don't label people. The world does. We look at people as loved, created in his image, and Jesus longs to be in relationship with them. And maybe by the way we treat them, we might be the very thing God uses to bring them into a relationship with God. Now look at this, verse 6. The, 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 the foreman replied, here comes a label. Oh, she's just a Moabitess. And behind that, there's a racial put-down there's a, I got to use code language. There is a, uh, the way that the, the sexual ethics she came from in Moabite, there's that and, and a freedom that might belong to the way they treat her. She's a widow. She's um, a laborer. She's poor. She has zero agency. Men and women, she's that person on the side of the street with the cardboard sign that says, hungry, that we turn our face away from. Because we don't even want to make eye contact with them, let alone dignify them, let alone engage in a conversation with them. That's Ruth. And he says, she's a Moabitess. She came back from Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather sheaves behind the harvesters. She went to the field. Now look what stands out about her. She worked steadily till morning, till now, except for a short rest in uh, the shelter. Verse 8, so Boaz said to Ruth, now look at this, look at the contrast. What's the next two words? My daughter. My daughter. 
Come on, it's an open book test. You can do this. What's the next two words? My daughter. Moabitess. No, no, no. The man of standing. Skilled in the art of war. The man of character. No one is a label. I'm going to treat you as if you were my own daughter. Men, how would that change the way we interact with women in person or virtually if we held that conviction? He says, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. Now, this is, I, I can't even uh, tell you how countercultural this is. He's very Jesus-like, and he turns the cultural norms upside down and gives all the agency to a woman, never done in this time. But a man of standing is all about empowering others. And he says, don't go glean in another field. Don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting. Follow along after the girls. I've told the men not to touch you. And whenever you're thirsty, go get a drink from the water jars. Here it is. The men have filled. You don't serve the men. I'm going to have my men serve you. What do we hear and what do we read about this? Ruth was leaving the field as Boaz was arriving. Something had happened in the field that she's like, I, I, I don't care how hungry I am. I can't, I can't put up with this anymore. And she was leaving. And she runs into Boaz and says, don't leave. I will protect you. I've got your back. Man of standing showed up. I won't tolerate that. Something had happened so egregious uh, to where she was uncomfortable and she was out. So he advocates for her. And he says to her, in essence, hey, uh, oh, well, let's look at verse 10. Then she fell, face bowing to the ground. Boaz is so protective of her, she just, she breaks and says, I can't believe this. This is so good. Why are you doing this to me? At this, she bowed with her face to the ground and said, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? You got your Bibles open? Look at chapter 2, verse 2. Look what we opened with just eight verses ago. What was she going to do? She was looking for someone in whose eyes she could find what? In verse 2. Favor. Thanks, Jojo. And now she's like, oh my gosh, God answered that prayer. And why do I have favor in your eyes? I mean, she doesn't exactly have the traits that a man of standing would be looking for. She's sweaty. She's dirty. She's not a Hebrew. She's a, from a pagan family. She's not a seasoned worshiper of God. She spent most of her life in a cult. Um, she's homeless. And as a bonus prize, she lives with a bitter, angry woman. And yet she's being treated in a way she never thought she should. Verse 11, Boaz replied. Now here's encouragement. Boaz didn't reply, oh, because you look beautiful to me. That's why I want to have favor over you. Oh, it's your black mourning clothes that you're wearing. They really look good on you, so I have favor. Oh, it's that perfume, Beau, that French perfume. Actually, B-O. You smell so good, I want to have favor. No. Look what he says. This is what encouragement does. It pulls out of our daughters, dads, who they are in Christ so that they can be encouraged to do great things through Christ. That's encouragement. Look what he says. I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. You've been so other-focused. How you left your father and mother and homeland and came to live with the people you don't know. And then what does he do? He goes to prayer. 
Now may the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth, your character precedes you. And this is a public prayer, my brothers. He is saying this in front of his workplace. This woman has found favor before God. We're going to come back to prayer. We talked about it last night. Let me give you two prayer pointers. Again, he's praying for someone else. Uh, about five years ago, I was in London, and uh, in that point, I was an avid runner and um, would run my way through places I'd go travel just to discover them. And I was running through London, and I ran past this statue of the prodigal son. It was so beautiful, it, just, it, it literally took my breath away. It was in front of a church called HTB London. And I was just looking at it, and I kept running down this alley, and I, I can only describe it this way. It was as if a magnetic force was pulling me into a room. Sweaty, it was a summer day in London, and I walk into this room, and it was a prayer room. This church had a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week prayer room. And there were people praying in there, but it was the sign is the whole reason I think I was drawn into this room. And I have a picture of it, actually... Yeah, it, it's on my preaching binder. And it says this, Welcome to the HTB 24-7 prayer room. Come in and do business with God. And here's the line that has wrecked me and changed my prayer life. Here's what it said. History belongs to the intercessors. I'm like, what? History belongs to the intercessors? Wait a second, when I'm praying... I'm actually making history? When I'm interceding for my neighbors, I'm bending the course of the future so God's favor goes their way? I've never been able to pray the same since. And that's what he believed. Boaz is praying for things because he wants to make history. Men of standing do that. So I would hope, just to pull out of this, that we don't just pray for people, but that we have a culture where we pray with people. Since that time, when I've come across, and as a pastor, you do all the time, you know, hey, in the grocery store, how you doing? I'm doing, I've had a rough day. Would you pray for me? What can I pray for? And we're in aisle nine of the grocery store. Oh, I, I just, I, I think I'm about to lose my job. Thanks for praying. They're walking away. I pull them, like, wait, right there, pray for them. I don't just want to pray for them. I want to pray with them. And they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, I thought you asked me to pray for you. I'm praying for you. Pray with people. It's so encouraging when they hear your prayers. Pray with your daughters daily. Let them hear you praying. And then don't just pray for a solution. We'll see this tonight. Be willing to be the solution. See, it's not just enough that I pray, God, nurture my wife and bring her joy. I think I can be the answer to that. God, feed my kids and fill them with love. God, lead my neighbor to you. What if I'm the answer to that prayer? I was in a situation just two weeks ago where a friend of mine had um, a Peloton that he wasn't using. And he's like, if you know of anybody that needs a Peloton, let me know. Is anyone in here? Need a I already gave it away. But uh, So two nights later, I'm with a colleague of mine who literally had the Peloton app um, on her cell phone and would have a, had a janky exercise bike and put the Peloton app on the bike, and that's how she was doing Peloton. And she's like, my bike broke. 
would you pray that I get a new bike? And I'm like, I won't. I, I have an answer to that prayer. I have a friend who's got a Peloton. She's like, what? I'm like, yes, let's go get it. And, she, and it was so fun to be the courier of the answer to that prayer, to be the steward of that. So don't just pray for people, pray with people. Be careful of just praying for solutions. Be the solution. Okay, let's land this plane. Verse 13. She says, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. Dad, here's a great line for our marriages, for our relationship with our daughters. You've given me comfort. And you've spoke kindly to your servant, though I don't have the standing of one of your servant girls. She said, I needed favor in verse 2. You've been the answer to that prayer. Dads, I want you to look at me. And I want to say this in Christ. This is true of every single one of you. You have what it takes to be a man of standing. And I want to quote Philippians 3 that God just put in my head right now. It's not in my notes. Forget what lies behind. Forget about everything that you did coming up to this conference, including what you did Thursday night that the enemy is trying to remind you of and, and lying to you, stealing, killing, destroying who you can be in Christ. Forgetting what lies behind, looking forward to what lies ahead, you press on. And may this weekend be that time something significant happens because of Jesus where the narrative of your life, the narrative of your family is something happened that November weekend of 2022 my dad was never the same. It was never the same. You have what it takes to be a man of standing. And if you are in Christ, this is what Jesus did his whole life. He went and encouraged and relabeled people his whole earthly ministry. And if we're in Christ, we're going to do the same. He came up to Simon and said, you're no longer Simon. You're a rock. You're Peter. A woman breaks into a party and breaks an alabaster jar, and all the men are, is a guy's party, are talking about her. And Jesus stands up and says, do you see this woman? I don't think you do. I see this woman. You see labels. I see a woman. And he encourages her, and she's never the same. So you have what it takes to be a man of standing. Let encouragement be part of your daily, daily practice where you are relabeling people in Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for Boaz. Thank you that he's in this book. Jesus, I see you so clearly in Boaz. I see you living out the gospel through this Old Testament narrative because you too came to survey your fields, planet Earth, and you saw us at our worst, you saw us before we were in Christ being labeled, being uh, heckled, doing terrible things, and you pursued us. You spoke directly and kindly to us, Jesus. You went beyond the law and lavished us with grace, and now we have your favor. What kind of God serves us like this the way you did? So, Lord, let us follow you in your strength. Let us be your people. In a world where everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, we want to follow you. We want to see people as they truly are. We want our countenance, our kindness, our words 
to put a disequilibrium in them that wonders what kind of God you are. We love you, and we thank you. And Father, I pray especially for the dads this morning, especially the dads who are just riddled with guilt, who are believing lies, making subtle or not so subtle agreements with the enemy, that today would be a day of salvation. Today would be a day of breakthrough. Today would be the day where they take you at your word, they get out of their head and into your word and take your word as their truth and their reality. I need that. I pray that for my brothers and the daughters here too. We love you and, and we're so sorry for the way this world labels. We're so sorry. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to remedy that. We pray this in your name. Amen.